What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am deeply honored and blown away to have today's guest, Fred Kaufman, here with me on the Pivot Podcast. Fred doesn't even know this, but he changed my life. I went through, when I first started working at Google, I was fortunate enough to work under Sheryl Sandberg's umbrella of the organization in online sales and operations. And although I wasn't reporting directly to Cheryl, I got to go through a leadership program through a company called Axlent, which Fred started, and based on a book called Conscious Business. This training changed my life in so many ways. It taught me, for the first time, principles like player versus victim mentality, uh, total responsibility and ownership. After this training, I never, I really try to avoid saying I'll try as a commitment to anything. It's either yes, no, or renegotiate. I learned not to say, sorry, I was late, there was traffic, but rather, sorry, I was late, there was traffic, and I didn't get up early enough, or I didn't leave early enough. But the biggest influence was that I got a coaching session through this program. And for the first time in my life, my coach, Eric, asked me, what is your life purpose? And when I told him I wanted to help others, he said, well, who? I said, maybe young professionals who feel a little lost and lonely in their career or a little confused. And he said, you know, I normally don't advise this, but maybe you want to go to a coach training program or orientation like me. And so because of that advice, because of Excellent, I went to CTI's coach training. I became a career coach. I started Life After College, my first website, which became my first book. I created Google's Global Career Career Guru program that's still in place today, 10 years later. And it just created this epic fork in my life. And after reading Conscious Business, I dove way more into self-help, personal development, Buddhism, business, spirituality. And it just has changed my life in the most epic way. So it's really a trip to be able to have Fred here and get to talk to you and say thank you, Fred, one-on-one almost 12 years later after I first experienced your program. So thank you and welcome. Wow. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, that's a I'm blown away right now. I didn't know all this, Jenny. I'm uh, very grateful to be here with you. And But I'd like to uh, adjust one of the things you said. The principle of absolute responsibility cuts both ways. <clears throat> it's true that when you're late, you have to take responsibility saying, I did not get up early enough. But when you do something phenomenal, like you just described, don't credit the book. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> It wasn't the book, and it wasn't Eric, and it wasn't the course. It was you. You also need to take credit for that. So uh, I tell people, look, if um, if if you don't learn anything, don't blame me. Uh, but if you learn a lot, don't credit me either. It's, it, you, you're you're coming to the gym, the course or any conversation. It's like a gym that is available for you to do your practice and grow. Uh, but it's you who have to do the practice, and it's also you who 
deserve the credit for the fruits of your effort. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful story. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud to have participated in some small way, but uh, I'm sure there were lots of other people that went through that program and it didn't do anything to them. <laughs> so it's not the program, it's uh, you with the little support or invitation from the program or my work. And, and it's, it's delightful that our paths cross again uh, after all these years. And hopefully we can have a good conversation that will help your audience also uh, develop some skills or find themselves in a way that's more powerful than what they had available before they listened to this. So well said, Fred. Thank you. And yeah, it really <laughs> is humbling. And it's true that uh, not only to, to also take credit and responsibility when things go well, but of how many people shone that light. So you with your book, Conscious Business, Cheryl, making the decision to bring this concept and this type of culture to Google. Eric, you know, everything along the way. It's and you describe this, so let's catch people up. Um, we are also celebrating you today, and your book just launched. It's called The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. And you've made your own pivot. You're now an advisor in leadership development at Google, funnily enough, mm -hmm. speak of the devil. And that's you're working with top CEOs and executives around the world. Just to catch everyone up on Fred's background, Fred is an economist trained at UC Berkeley. He taught finance at MIT before founding his global consulting company. And in that time, Accent trained over 15,000 executives. So, Fred, I'm so excited to dive into the meaning revolution. Can you tell us, just let's start with, how do you define transcendent leadership? Uh, well, let's start with leadership. Uh, for me, leadership is eliciting the internal commitment of others to pursue a common mission. So um, leadership is not about telling people what to do, but about uh, letting people find their way to participate in a common project in a way that is um, self-motivated. Uh, and um, that comes from their own will, not from fear or from uh, their unmet needs. That, that's leadership in general, any type of leadership. But I, I want to go further than that. And when I describe transcendent leader or transcendent leadership is the leadership that evokes that commitment based on a project that goes beyond the personal needs of the person. Uh, like, for example, um, when you when Eric asked you, you know, what's your life purpose? You didn't say, well, to to make a lot of money and have a lot of things and, um, you know, um, build a great house that I'm not saying that's wrong, um, but you wanted something beyond yourself, which is to have the meaning in my life of having a positive influence in others or helping these young professionals find themselves and so on, as you described. That's a transcendent mission because it transcends the boundaries of your small self or your ego, and it encompasses other people uh, in a way that you feel related to them with care. So that's how I define transcendent leadership. In, in, a, in a business example, it would be a company needs to serve its customers. Uh, when a, uh, you know, a, a CEO or a senior executive says, <clears throat> you know, let's let's build this and we'll all be rich. That will inspire certain people 
uh, or would inspire people after a certain level, but after they all get rich, well, what's left? Um, there's no motive to continue going. Uh, if uh, a leader inspires people or invites people to join a project that will make other people's lives better, then that goes way beyond what people can get for themselves immediately, and it connects them to a much larger community in a way that's meaningful. That's one of the things I love the most about your work is that you make the point, particularly in The Meaning Revolution, that business can and should be seen as a spiritual endeavor, that rather than some compartment of our life that's off to the side, that the most successful leaders inspire heroes' journeys among their teams. And I love the way you describe kind of the old model or the broken model of leadership that's about carrots and sticks. And you say, uh, this is ludicrous. Imagine a thief pointing a gun at you and commanding, give me your respect, your support, your friendship. (laughs) It's so true. And when you put it that way, that like, of course, that's not going to work. And then I would love for you to share later in the book, you say even certain efforts at employee engagement, which is an area that I work with a lot of companies on through Pivot, you say they don't work. And you give the analogy of a marriage proposal. Can you yes. describe that to everybody? Yeah, well, imagine if I if I came to you, Jenny, and say, Jenny, you know, I'd like to marry you. And you say, Why? Why would you like to? And I said, well, because, you know, I read the statistic that married men live uh, five years longer than unmarried men. I mean, this is just really real. What, what would you think of me? Right. <laughs> if I told you, I mean, literally, if I just said that to you, and if what, you said, what, like, what would be your thought? And if you said, like, male engagement in society is low, so let's get married, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be like, you're crazy. What's in it for me? You know, why? That's, yes. that's no incentive. Exactly. Yeah. It, you know, it would be the, like the story, like the story of the thief, the um, that that we were discussing. Um, that instead of pointing a gun at you, saying "Love me, and I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars," and be like, "Well, that's prostitution. That's not love." Uh, you know, you you you, don't, you can't buy love. You can buy uh, sexual services or a, a pretense, but you can't buy love. Um, and that that's the problem of many uh, of these engagement programs that they say, OK, we're going to give people a lot of goodies and then they'll be committed. And that's just not not the way it goes. And if uh, people ask the managers and they are asking implicitly, why? Why do you want to engage us? And the answer, the implicit answer is because if you're engaged, you're going to be more productive and we're going to make more money. That seems disrespectful that seems abusive manipulative just like the guy that says i want to marry you because i feel lonely or i feel that you know my health is going to improve if you take care of me it's like oh really uh so as you said what's in it for me why why would why would i want to marry you the question is not why do you want to marry me but why would i want to marry you what what's what's in it for me and that's a much harder question that most companies don't have a good answer for because most leaders have not thought about that because they think Oh, well, you know, I'm paying you. That's enough. So shut up and keep rowing. Mm. Uh, like, oh, really? I'm not a slave. I mean, you're going to get you're going to get the minimum effort that I need to spend for you not to fire me, uh, which is true. And it's like a thief is going to get the minimum level of collaboration from me that I need for him or her not to shoot me. But uh, that's it. There's no discretionary effort. There's no creativity. 
there's no intelligence, there's no commitment, there's no uh, uh, flexibility, there's nothing that is discretionary is going to come out of a coercive situation. It's interesting that there is this gap because I think a lot of those leaders would say that they're well-intentioned. Like, of course, I want my employees to be happy. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how this relates to the burnout conversation as well, where let's say employees are giving so much to the organization and the company says, oh, we want to make sure you don't burn out here. We'll create meditation classes and rooms, but that there still seems to be a gap between leaders caring um, and and again, maybe partly for these uh, more of the thief <laughs> type reasons. Yeah, yeah. And then exactly, partly out exactly. of care as well. But it, there's this gap remains, and so these. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, Jenny, the, there's a very corrupting influence on everybody and every human's life, and that's the desire to achieve the goal without committing to the practice. So I remember, and I wrote in the book, when I wanted to run a marathon, and I went to a personal trainer and I said, hey, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna run a marathon. I said, everybody wants to run a marathon. The question is, do you wanna get up at five in the morning to train every day? <laughs> I was blown away. It's mm -hmm. like, of course, I mean, if, I, I, I never thought of, of the practice, uh, I mean, the practice is something I had to do to run a marathon, but I, I would do it begrudgingly. And he was saying, no, 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 love the practice. You have to fall in love with the process, not the outcome. The outcome is cheap. That's, uh, of course, everybody falls in love with the outcome, but that's, um, that's corrupting because then you want the outcome without the process. Like, I want to lose weight, give me a pill. Or I want to be healthy, so um, just operate on me. And most of the problems are behavior. I mean, I'm not denying that in some situations it's necessary to take a pill or to have surgery. But the vast majority of diseases that afflict us are, um, are behavioral uh, diseases. They are related to diet, smoking, not sleeping, drinking, uh, lack of exercise, uh, whatever, lack of self-care. So if, if I go to a company and say, what do you want? I want to engage my employees. It's like, okay, that, that's, that's nice, but... What are you willing to do? Do you, do you want to do what it takes to engage the employees? And it's not uh, giving them pills to make them happy or giving them goodies to make them happy. It's a lot deeper than that. Uh, um, and uh, that's the kind of the hard challenge that every leader has, that it, it seems obvious what's the right way to run the organization. Um, what it's not obvious is what are the practices that you have to do day in and day out as a life commitment that are going to yield those ways of managing and leading. Uh, just think of a diet. It, it's, the easiest, it's the easiest example. You know, reading the book of diet is, is the easy part. I mean, you, you need to know what to do, and of course, but, you know, you, you, want, you, want a, you want a diet, just stop eating sugar and eat healthy fats. That's it. Sugar, starches, uh, flours, rice, stop all that. I need healthy fats and a small amount of protein. That's it. That it, I mean, of course, you can write hundreds of pages, but that's the beginning. Now, that's a non-starter for 99% of humanity. It's like, what? Yeah, I mean, no bread? Are you crazy? I, mean, right. I, 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 I want my donuts. <laughs> it's like, okay, they, then have them, but don't complain when, you know, you, you don't lose weight. It's just, you have 
oh, no, but I want to lose weight. The question is not whether you want, everybody wants to lose weight. The question is, are you, do you want to stop eating that which prevents you from losing weight? And most people in leadership are just not willing to do what it takes to become an ins- a source of inspiration, to connect with people with care, with love, with understanding, invite them to join a common mission. And that doesn't mean being, uh, I would say, nice. I, I, I write in the book, I disagree with the idea of servant leadership, that the leader is in service of the people. For me, the leader is in service, as everybody else, in service of the mission. And there are some missions that will require sacrifices. In the extreme, it could be the sacrifice of my own life. Or I mean, there are things I would die for. And there are things that, if you're in my team, I would tell people, you know, if this happens, then we're going to die for this. And if you don't want that, then this would not be a good place for you to go. It's, it's like a plane. You know, this plane is going to Florida. If you don't want to go to Florida, uh, this would be an excellent time to deplane because mm-hmm. we are going there. And and I would tell people that, and then whoever wants can join. But that doesn't mean you come here and it's guaranteed you're have a good time. Um, without making it so dramatic, there, there are companies and, or jobs where you have to say, look, there's, there's some risks to this job and there's the need to uh, work long hours and, and um, be exposed uh, to, to, to these risks. Are you willing to do this? Is this important enough or is this aligned with your life mission in a way that you would be willing to accept these risks as a, as a part of your commitment? And if the person says yes, then that's wonderful. And if they say no, then this is not a suitable agreement for both of us. Mm. I like how you encourage leaders to describe the company mission in a way that would make their children proud if they told their friends at school. How did you arrive at the children proud benchmark of this mission? Oh, it's a it's a sweet story. I had to do it in a hurry. I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I was was about to go. I was working with AXA, the, the insurance, the French insurance company, and I was going to fly. I lived in Boulder. And I was going to fly to Paris for a month. Um, and my uh, at that time, seven year old daughter, <clears throat> her name is Michelle. Um, now she's uh, nineteen. So Michelle looked at me with this, her big eyes full with tears and she said daddy please don't go <laughs> it just bro- it broke my heart i'm like oh i wanted to say well sorry michi daddy has to go which is a total victim statement um so i didn't say that but i, I was tempted to say yeah i don't have a choice i have to go so i had to think you know what do i tell her and i <clears throat> I, I just said uh, impromptu well michi you know the if I died, it would be a really bad thing. She was shocked. I looked at me and said, yes, that would be bad. And I said, but it would be probably worse because if I died, there'd be a lot of hardships that fall on you and mommy and, and the rest of the family because mommy would have to go work a lot more and you would have money issues and you couldn't continue going to school and you probably couldn't stay in this house. And now she was freaking out. It's like, oh my God, that's really bad. Um, and I told her, well, the people I work with, they can't stop that I can have an accident. I mean, that's just life. Anybody can have accidents anytime. That's unfortunately the reality in which we live. But what they do is 
they guarantee, I pay them a little bit every month, and they guarantee that if something happens to me, <clears throat> they'll give mommy enough money that nobody has those sorts of problems, he, you or uh, your brothers and sisters, and you'll be all, all right. And that that's a beautiful thing because these people allow me and a lot of parents like me to take care of their loved ones even after they die. And that's just... This is an amazing superpower that we have to to love people beyond their physical existence and take care of them. And that's thanks to them. That that's what they do. And she she just literally said, "Go, Daddy, go." Uh, she Aww. she pushed me. It's like, "Go, Daddy, go." And I was like so proud. And I I don't even work for AXA. I mean, I, I was just a consultant, but I felt so proud to participate in that. And then, of course, I got I got to France and I told them the story. <laughs> they said, "Oh, you should be selling insurance." That was the <laughs> uh, you should be selling life insurance. And one of the one of the executives who was there around the table said, "No, you guys don't understand. We don't sell life insurance. We sell love." Mm. And that, that came from that came from from one of the leaders there. I was so impressed. Wow! It, it was such a beautiful thing. Um, and you know, he was, he was the only one who said that the other people laughed a little bit and then we continued the conversation, but he wasn't kidding. And I wasn't kidding either. You don't sell whatever you sell, you sell love. So with your book or with your podcast or when you coach people or when you create a, a, a program that other people use, you are not just giving a material or even a conceptual product to people. You are creating the conditions in which they can flourish. And they participate in that program or read the book or listen to your podcast or hire you as a coach or a consultant because they see that your presence in their lives helps them flourish. And that's that's a that's a noble thing. And the way you introduced the podcast made me feel so proud. And I would I hope my kids are gonna listen to this podcast. They're all grown up now, but for <laughs> sure I'm gonna, I'm gonna send this podcast to them because they're studying now to become the same thing in, in you know whatever career they're, they're following they, they they all want to do something that will leave a mark in the world and the best mark that we can leave is to participate in the lives of others so that they flourish and they grow and they find themselves so beautifully said and and when you were talking about love as the root of what we all do, at least in the best case scenario, it's true. I think the the work I'm proudest of has my heart in it. And in fact, when my heart's not in it, I just can't continue. And I don't see a reason to continue. And um, I think you'll like there's a quote I've shared at the back of Pivot in the, af in the acknowledgments from Carlos Ruiz Lafon, who said, Every book has a soul, the soul of the person who wrote it and of those who read it and lived it and dreamed with it. Every time a book changes hands, every time someone runs his eyes down its pages, its spirit grows and strengthens. And it mm. seems like that's what's possible in business as well, not just a book, but in the best case. And what I love about your work is you're such an advocate for putting our love into what we do and our meaning and our mission. Yes. That's beautiful. Carlos, uh, I, I love uh, Luis Safon, his book, The Shadow of the Wind, is one of my favorite all-time books. It's just an amazing novel. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea that every every product or everything you create has a soul, and this soul is evolving. Uh, seems very metaphysical, but it's shockingly practical. I mean, that that 
changes the way you deliver your services, changes the way you think about your products, changes the way, and it, 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 it's just, it's very sound economics. I, I mean, you may not know this, but um, the guy who's credited for being the first economist, um, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, was actually a moral philosopher. And his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, was a book about benevolence. And he, he went into economics because, or at least he uh, drifted towards the economic considerations because he realized pure benevolence was not enough to maintain cohesion in society. You, you, you feel benevolence for the people you, you're close to, but then this decays, um, like, like uh, gravity with the, you know, the square of the distance, so to speak, that the, lo the farther people are uh, in a spiritual sense or in a relational sense to you, the less you feel benevolent towards them. So um, it's not a, a sufficiently strong force to maintain cohesion in society, but uh, self-interest, as he de described it, is. Now I'm trying to put those two things together and say the ultimate self-interest is not the interest of your ego, but the interest of something that's bigger than your ego, and it's a larger notion of self. There's this is a bit metaphysical, but the, the, the implication of it is that you can love other people as thy brothers or sisters, you, because you can love them as you love yourself, and you, you, you find that they are fellow human beings which have hopes and dreams and uh, fears and pains, and you say, oh, I, I'd like to participate in their lives as a source of growth, of solace, of, of rest, of satisfaction, of meaning. And now you create whatever product, it could be a book, but whatever you create, it could be a course, it could be a podcast, it's, um, it's, it could be a search engine, uh, you know, to talk about Google. <laughs> it, it, it's something that will develop a soul and it will become part of uh, human existence. And that's very, very, very practical. It's not, it's not something for the church or, or your spiritual practice when, only when you're meditating. It's something to build any team, any company around. And whoever comes to your uh, team or your company enrolled in that mission will have a completely different disposition than someone who's there just to collect a paycheck. A hundred percent. I love your chapter on super conscious capitalism. And you talk about returning to the market with helping hands. And uh, it's funny while reading your book, because I'm thinking about my next at the intersection of spirituality and business. And I was like, well, Fred just went ahead and wrote it. We quote all the same things like you, you cited Khalil Gibran's um, work is love made visible. And sure. I just love what you described and even how you're saying this is practical. It doesn't just have to be about self-interest, nor does it have to mean that we can't love each other and bring in what, what I, this is what I think the gap that you're bridging is that what might have been considered metaphysical in the past, especially as it relates to a traditional business book, you are putting front and center. And you even describe in the book your interest in shamanic journeys and your experience with psilocybin and the insights that you discovered. And I'm wondering, were you at all hesitant to share that? Or are you just kind of like so clear on your mission that you're, you're willing to put all this forward in your book and in your work? 
Well, I, I, I was, uh, I was conflicted about it. Uh, not, not about uh, what I did, but about sharing it so widely. And then a lot of people, friends, editors, it's like almost unanimously were against it. Against uh, this is too exposed. It? Yeah, yes, against sharing. So it. Yes, yes. Uh, it's too exposed. Uh, you're, you know, you're, and and it, and it is a sort of sacrifice. Um, but I, I have to say, I, I was very inspired by uh, the book Waking Up, Sam Harris, who Love wrote that. a book on med- meditation. And he, because he's so iconoclastic and he's considered, uh, you know, the anti-religious uh, extremist. Uh, and yet he wrote this fantastic book about neuroscience and meditation and spiritual practice, but spiritual in a, in a different way, not, not in a in a uh, religious, the, the traditional religious way, but more in a personal, introspective and uh, transcendence way. And he says it all started with, with taking MDMA, ecstasy. And he tells, tells about that experience. And he's like, wow, this guy has guts. And I was so, I admired him so much. And I thought, oh, he, well, you know, if Sam Harris, can do it. I can do it. <laughs> it was something like it was kind of my mantra. Why can't Sam Harris talk about it and and I would not? And he said, "Well, this is my sacrifice. And if somebody doesn't want to work with me, you know, I, I I'm not a neuroscientist. I work in a corporate environment. I'll see. I mean, the the, the consequences haven't ensued yet. You know, I, I I have to see. Maybe some people will be horrified or they think I'm promoting drugs. I, I'm certainly not, but. But that, that is the truth of my experience, and I wanted to share with people what I did, what I learned, or what psilocybin taught me by uh, transcending certain not uh, like automatic states of mind, and what I brought back from that hero's journey to share with my community. I felt that was, I don't know, a statement of integrity. Absolutely. Like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it myself before if I'm inviting other people to to do this, then uh, it's it's just. My moral credibility depends on me being being out there and telling my truth. So that that's why I, I that's why I put it. Uh, it, it it's it's really a meaningful story for me, and I hope it will be meaningful for other people um, to learn something about themselves. That's that's what I love about it is that regardless of someone's position or whether they're going to do that or not, it's the courage that comes through. And just like your experience of reading Sam Harris. And I loved his book as well. But I had that experience reading yours, not because I have never done psychedelics. Um, and who knows if that's in the cards for me, my my general gut instinct tells me it's not not for me, but uh, doesn't matter. It still is the courage. And I still read that. And I thought, cool. You know, like, I love that you're blending this in. I love your courage and the and the and the truth. You said the word truth. And I think that that ties in so closely with love, and especially in a business context, and that courage and truth and soul that comes through when you share what has authentically been very powerful for you, we get to benefit from the message and from that boldness. And I think that just that alone is leading by example especially in a business context that needs it, where people, and myself included, can sometimes check myself at the door out of fear of what will people think. Yes. Oh, if you if we, if we were physically together, I'd give you a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a very, that's a very sweet thing, and it, it, it warms my heart. It's, it's, um, and it is exactly what I was hoping to do 
with the book, what I hope to do as a teacher and, and just my mission and my gift, which is very similar to yours, which is to uh, kind of go, go search and find the fire and then bring it back to the community. So other people don't have to do the same thing and people can go into their journeys uh, with the knowledge of the structure of the journey, but they don't have to go to the same place. Each one of us will take the journey that's appropriate to, to their life. And part of what I am trying to do is to bridge this gap where it seems that, you know, if you really want to have a meaningful life, you have to drop out. You have to leave the world and, and go live in a cave or in a monastery. And uh, if you want to be successful in the world, then you have to sell out. And you have to lose your soul and just be uh, uh, a regular, um, how would you say, uh, somebody that uh, is greedy and, and is trying to achieve material success without scruples. And I think both are, it's a false polarity, it's wrong. And there's a way to define love, which is very, very practical. It, it, it's, it's a commitment. It's not a heart feeling only. Uh, in fact, you can you can have this commitment without feeling it. It's just something you do because you know that's the right thing to do. And it's a commitment to support the evolution and the well-being of others. So this is a very uh, impersonal notion of love, and it, it's called agape in Greek, and it's the 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 love, uh, the charitable love, or the um, the love that uh, in the in the Greek translation of the Bible, is the, the, the word Jesus is supposed to have used. Not the love like love your enemies uh, in a way that they're family members or the way you love your spouse, but love your enemies as, you know, commit to support their evolution and their wellness. And may, may, they, may they grow out of their uh, fear and their rage and the, and the hatred that perhaps is guiding them to do nasty things. And that's, that's true, not just in Christianity, but every, every wise tradition will have something like that. So why can't we have that for business and say, if we go to the marketplace with the intention to help others with this agape love, that's how we are going to accomplish just beautiful things that we couldn't accomplish otherwise. And if you are uh, looking for a career and you're thinking, what's, what, what do I want to do? Well, the question, what's going to make your heart sing? And where do you want to go to contribute to the growth and well-being of others? And then you start seeing the company not as a place you work for, but actually as a platform that works for you. This is a radical shift. It's like, I don't, I don't work for Google. Google works for me. I'm, I'm, I'm associated with Google because Google enables me to pursue my life mission in a way that's much more powerful than anything I could do on my own. And when I work with LinkedIn and I gave my gift through them, to them and through them, I felt the same. It's like, this is a beautiful uh, opportunity that they are giving me to support humanity in a way that's way bigger than anything I could do on my own. And I'm infinitely grateful for that. I'm still affiliated with the LinkedIn. I, I, am, you know, I love those guys and I, I would help them any way I can. And I'm still you know, talking to them and all that. So there's no, I don't know, there's no sense of, oh, they're abusing me or they're making money with me. Oh, it's exactly the opposite. It's what a, what a blessing that uh, people like Reid Hoffman and Jeff Weiner have developed 
well, really is the founder of LinkedIn and Jeff, the CEO, have created this kind of platform that helps so many people develop their careers, find jobs, connect with other professionals, and that they give me a chance to be a part of but I would forever be grateful. And now I'm thinking, wow, Larry and Sergey created this amazing organization and they started on Eric Schmidt then and now Sundar, and these are all the executives at Google. And now they have this fantastic platform to contribute to humanity. And what a blessing to, to have a chance to participate there. Like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is an incredible journey. Uh, so when you start thinking of your career like that, it really changes the perspective with which you approach any job opportunity. It's it's such a great example of the fluidity with careers as well. You and I both have sort of, we work with these companies and you and I in particular have paths crossing where I worked at Google in 2006 and we did conscious business training and then I left in 2011. I still work with them today. They're using Pivot internally. And you've kind of done this dance also from Google as a consultant, then LinkedIn, now back to Google. And so there can be a fluidity when we see each other as brothers and sisters in this agape love where nothing is final. These relationships are fluid and evolving. And even the form that our businesses take and our, you know, the CEO of me, you know, kind of as Reid Hoffman talks about startup of you and even tours of duty, like you're such a great example. Um, And you read my mind because I wanted to ask you, your book, by the way, arrived unsolicited, like it just showed up on my doorstep one day. So the publisher sent it to me proactively. And, Mm. um, and I was surprised to see that you had pivoted from Axlint to LinkedIn. So I'd be curious if you could share a little bit about how you made that decision. And then even from LinkedIn to Google, like, how do you know when it's time to pivot and especially kind of leaving the business that you had started? Yeah. um, Well, that's a, that's a very personal, answer how you know when it's time to pivot is you feel you feel the pull and it's a it's a a bit of a mystery it's like asking a bird how do you know when to sing i don't know i guess the bird just feels like singing and it's an irrepressible urge to sing Uh, and you can you can do research on the outside what what triggers the bird to sing or but but the truth is it's just a, a mystery deep down something emerges that says it's time to pivot. Uh, but perhaps what I can share is what is the the sense I make of these pivots. And it's always, at least it's been for me, about the life mission. As you said at the beginning, when Eric asked you, you know, what's your life mission? Uh, that's a profound question that I think every person needs to ask, just like a company needs to ask itself or the leaders, what is our mission? Why, why do we exist? What's the point uh, of our our journey? And um, the point of my journey has always been to help uh, people just remember their true nature and find ways to invite people to rediscover who they are uh, deeply. And that, that deepness or that depth of exploration about the self has always called me. Now, my particular gifts are intellectual and business-like, so I, I, I wouldn't be uh, teaching philosophy or I wouldn't be perhaps in a, uh, in a spiritual environment. Um, in this 
whatever my life evolved in a way that I'm shaped to 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 be a, a good instrument for intervening in the business world. So I was doing that first in MIT, and then when I felt like it was time, I pivoted and I started my company, which developed into becoming Axialent uh, for many years. And then Axialent became quite big, and I found myself uh, managing and leading other people. But I'm I'm not personally a, a great uh, business leader. I don't feel that's my calling. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I like to teach. I like to engage with the 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 individual human beings with whom I work. So when uh, Jeff invited me to join, uh, and I had known Jeff Wiener from many years ago uh, when he was in Yahoo, I thought, wow, this seems like an amazing opportunity. And I did it. And after five years at LinkedIn and giving my gift and you know working with all their leaders, people have very long tenures in LinkedIn. So most of the senior leaders have been there for the five years that I have been there. I just felt, you know, they learned everything that I can share with them. You know, I can I can stay around and <laughs> it is very loving and they, they all wanted to just uh, have me stay. And and, and I, I, I said, they, we can be friends and I'm available and we can do that. But the truth is, if I were the owner of LinkedIn, I wouldn't hire someone like me at this point because I've given my gift and you have received it and you have taken it to a place where you, I mean, I, you know, it's just fun to be around, but I, I don't think I can contribute that much more. Mm. And yeah, they agreed. So it was a very friendly uh, transition to, to this new mode. And Google showed up. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't from pivoting from one to the other. It was first the truth of the relationship with LinkedIn had shifted. And as I opened myself to, well, what am I going to do next? I thought I was going to be more of a consultant to, to many companies. But um, Google said, oh, we'd love to try, you know, you advising us uh, in similar ways that you developed uh, for your book uh, in terms of aligning people in pursuit of a common goal in a complex organization. And that seemed like such a fascinating project. And Google is such an amazing company with, you know, the impact on the development of humanity that, I was like, of course. I mean, just tell me what do I need to do. I'll, 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 I'll do anything to to have a, a shot at participating in this epic story that you guys are writing. And that's how I feel. I, I started with them, you know, only like a month ago. Um, wow! And, um, so recent. And I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 very recent. And it was completely, yeah, uh, synchronistic. It wasn't. Yes. You know, it wasn't like a long conversation. Or anything. It just happened. Uh, so that that tells me it was a good thing, and and I am ecstatic about it. I'm still learning, uh, but the the guidance of the mission is what what has, um, in a sense, unfolded with all these uh, or through all these small smaller decisions. I love the synchronicity. And the timing, even with your book launching and the Google opportunity, it's always amazing to see how these things seem to come out of nowhere and then they make perfect sense somehow once it's in front of you. Yes. And, and and so fascinating to me because uh, when I started at Google in 2006, there was about 6,000 employees. And so 
in a fascinating way, you and Conscious Business planted so many seeds. And I know many of the people, I was in a training function, training thousands of people, many of them are still there today. So it's interesting that you're yes. diving back in and you have these like trailblazers and people who you've already, who will already know some of the culture that, that has, and and then I think it's good at 60,000 to get a refresh, you know, like, I think, <laughs> I think now's the time for them to have you and I, they're, they're lucky to have you and, and vice versa. I can understand for you, it is so compelling to get the chance to um, work at that scale. And I just love the, the image of you as going and finding the fire and bringing it, bringing it back. And the last thing I'll say there is even a company like Google, for all the culture and all the perks, um, it's not easy to grow to, I don't know exactly how many, so don't quote me on this, oh. uh, just pulling around 60,000 that, um, of course, oh, 80, 85,000. It's 85,000 it's, it's now? 85,000 oh people, yeah. Gosh. And expecting to be 100,000 very soon. That's Really wild. So yeah, what a fascinating time. Fred, I could talk to you all day, but I know you're busy launching your book. So um, wow, before I officially close, I would love if you could give listeners, I always like to leave them with one practical, actionable thing that they can try or practice. What would you have them do? Uh, you already said it. Ask yourself, what's your life mission? And then start planning your activities in a very fluid way in support of that life mission. And uh, the only thing you need is a next step. You don't need to plan all the way how I'm going to accomplish this mission, but you only need what's the next step that is going to bring me in the right direction. But you need to know the last step, which is this is my life mission and the first step. Don't worry about the rest of the process. Wonderful, Fred. Thank you so much for your time today. This is a dream. I didn't even dare to dream that I would get to talk to you in person. And thank you. And thank you. I let May I be a testament of the soul of your work and carrying it forward and just that you don't even know the extent of your reach and influence. And your work has been with me for over 12 years and will continue to be. And I'm just so excited for the meaning revolution. So those of you listening, please don't miss out on this book or Fred's work. Go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and check out The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. Thank you, Fred. Thank, thank you, Jenny. It's been an honor really to, to see how you're creating your soul imprint in such a beautiful way. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always 